called the Habit Change Workbook, How to Break Bad Habits and Form Good Ones, describes how one can overcome bad habits in their life. He offers five ways to defeat our habits. One, become hyper-aware of your habits. Number two, stop focusing on what you're not doing or going to do. Excuse me. Stop focusing on what you're not going to do. Three, be your own opposing counsel. Number four, think doom and gloom. And number five, focus as big as you can on your efforts, all of your efforts on your environment. Now, these might seem wise or helpful um, as we consider bad habits, but one of the things I thought was particularly helpful in considering this is, is thinking about how we often attack our bad habits. How, how the world often approaches habits in their lives. Maybe you think about how perhaps you have a bad habit, whether it be, you know, maybe biting your fingernails or that annoying chewing of gum or, or some sort of habit that you do, some, something that you're trying to break. And we think about the way we approach that, the way we, we come at that. What I want to do is just kind of think for a moment as we, we think about approaching uh, habits. Uh, this one author says, become hyper aware of your habits. Really think about it often, you know, the, kind of bring it to the forefront. Uh, really, really spend a lot of time on that habit and, and thinking about what you're doing. Um, he says, offers somewhat of a conflicting thing, but says, stop focusing on what you're not going to do. So, so it's again, to so focus more on what you're doing than what you're not doing. So give your time and attention, if you will, uh, to what you, you're currently doing, not what you want to do. In uh, this one, being, a, being your own opposing counsel, what he, the author's trying to argue here is he's saying that you kind of go and you kind of uh, tell yourself, you know, what would other people say about this bad habit? What do people say? And sort of be your own, you know, sort of point the finger at you. Um, think doom and gloom, if you will. That's what he's saying is that think really bad thoughts about this habit, and therefore this habit just kind of goes away. We think about these. This is how Christians often approach sin. One thing we often do is label sin as bad habits. We kind of say, oh, it's just a bad habit. It's not really sin. And it's true that some bad habits, if you will, biting your fingernails, for example, it's not bad. It's not simple. It's just gross, right? Let's be clear. Right? There's a difference there between biting your fingernails and committing adultery. There's a difference there between a habit and sin. But the point is, is that when we look at our sin, how do we approach our sin? Do we approach it the way this author, this author uh, exhorts us to approach sin? Just looking at sin as like a bad habit that we need to break? Some sort of thing, we need to stop doing this and start doing this? How do we approach the sin in our hearts and lives? That's what we're going to think about together this morning. How do we approach sin? I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9 and verse 42. Mark chapter 9 and verse 42. Hear the word of our Lord. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. 
And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus has been giving his disciples instructions. We've considered over the last four weeks various instructions Jesus gives in light of his command to take up the cross, take up your cross and follow him. So if you will, just if your Bible is still open, just look at verse 34 of chapter 8. Chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus exhorts his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So what we see here is that Jesus is giving his disciples the call to follow him. That is, that following Jesus will be costly, but it's worth it in the end. And it's in light of that exhortation that Jesus unfolds those four things we've been considering over the last four weeks. First, the necessity of faith. That is, genuine disciples have faith. They're not faithless. Their faith is not perfect. But they have faith, and that faith is growing. Secondly, we considered that disciples must have humility. That a disciple of Jesus Christ is greatest when he's the least. Whenever he's serving others. When he's in a position of loving service for others. That's when a disciple is the greatest. And so Jesus' disciples aren't concerned about position. And jockeying to get higher higher up the, up the ladder of life. But rather are seeking to serve more and more. Get lower and lower in life rather than higher and higher. And so there's this necessity of, of faith. And then the necessity of humility. And then last week, we considered considered together the necessity of unity. The necessity of unity. That is, that disciples of Jesus Christ work to unify the body, not divide the body. That in our lives, we we seek to be peacemakers, not dividers. That we seek to, to exhort one another to unity and unified body, rather than dividing. This week, we're going to consider, excuse me, holiness. That is, that disciples need to pursue holiness. The necessity for holiness. Consider God's word on this matter of holiness. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Or consider this, what we heard in our scripture reading this morning. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. Paul exhorts pastors, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. The author of Hebrews exhorts us to holiness, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Finally, Peter writes, you shall be holy for I am holy. We see there both a command and a promise. 
You are to be holy because God is holy. But notice the promise is that you shall be holy. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that only sinless people go to heaven. Only those who are holy go to be with a holy God. God cannot be with unholy people. And we're going to consider more about that this morning in our text. In our passage this morning, Jesus is exhorting his disciples to take radical steps in their lives, to guard themselves and others from sin. That they are to pursue holiness in their lives and protect others from sin. Jesus lays out for us, if you will, three ways disciples work towards radical discipleship. I want you to see this morning that Jesus is telling followers that it will be costly to follow me. That you, if you wish to follow me, if you wish to be a Christian, if you wish to be a Christ follower, you must be aware that there are three things that you need to be aware of. Three things that you need to be actively involved. That's going to be costly. It's going to hurt a little bit to follow Jesus. When Jesus says to his disciples, take up my, your cross, excuse me, and follow me, he does not mean put a cross around your neck and you know, go about life. But Jesus says you take up that form of torment and torture and suffering and you follow after me. And so brothers and sisters, we will consider this morning three things. First, keep your life from leading others to, from, to sin. Excuse me. Keep your life, keep your life, from leading others to sin. Notice what he says here in verse 42. Whomever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Who are these little ones that Jesus is talking about here? Is is Jesus talking about children here? I don't believe so. If you look back up the context here, in verse 37, remember Jesus' disciples were barking with one another about who is the greatest. They were were having that great debate about, you know, hey, Jesus loves me more than anyone else. Jesus thinks I'm the best. Uh, I'm the most faithful guy. And Jesus comes, and what he does, he he has this vivid illustration. He he illustrates for the disciples what, what humility really looks like. And he invites a child into their midst. And he puts that child and he, and he embraces that child in his arms. Now, this culturally was kind of foreign and taboo. He didn't do that. Um, it's a reminder of that. Jesus isn't, you know, <laughs> modeling here for us some sort of behavior. But rather, he, he is, he, he's teaching us the kind of embrace that, that disciples are to have for those that are weak in faith. So the context here are are perhaps new Christians. So these little ones that Jesus is talking about here isn't children, though perhaps it could include children. I think what what he's talking about here is that faith, or those that have little faith, are these little ones, these ones that, that, that believe in me, he says in verse 42. So again, these are Christians who are believing in Christ and are trusting in Christ, but perhaps are 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 humble. Or, or, or small, the little ones in Christ. And so the context here seems to be those that, that sort of are prideful, those that are proud, causing those that are humble in sin. Those of little faith, these, these weak Christians, leading them to sin. 
Now, if you don't have an ESV Bible, if you have perhaps another translation, um, your, your translation might say something, cause to stumble. So if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, and so what's the difference? Why, 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 why does the ESV lend itself to that? And I, it's really because the word is trying to communicate there is this aspect of causing someone's downfall, someone's moral decay. So, so while sin is true, it's somewhat vague and limited. What, what kind of particular sin is Jesus talking about here? It's really leading someone to lose faith in God. It's really what Jesus has in mind here. So you think, well, well how? What, 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 what could, how could this happen? How, how could pride cause someone's downfall? Well, brothers and sisters, if you've been in church long... We see many models of that around us. Those that are arrogant. Those that know everything. That make the new Christian feel as if they're unwelcome until they attain some sort of spiritual marker in their life. Unless you know and can quote the Bible, then well, you're not that good of a Christian yet. Sort of, sort of these spiritual markers in people's lives. Or, or maybe, maybe it's your life. Maybe it's the fact that wait, as a new Christian, you know, you don't have everything together yet, right? Right? You're still living in sin. There's still some things you need to, you need to get right in your life. We kind of point at our fingers and say, well, you must not be a Christian. You don't, have, you, don't, you don't do all these things that I do. Perhaps it's our gossip. You ever consider that when you talk bad about other Christians in front of new Christians, that that actually works to undermine their faith in God? You ever consider that when you badmouth your husband in front of a new Christian or your wife in front of a new Christian, that actually works to undermine the work of the gospel in their life? You ever consider that when you lead a life of sin, you actually are, are causing others to sin? As Paul exhorts in 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, I lay down certain liberties because it's causing other people to sin. Do we allow our liberties in Christ to rise to the level of causing others to stumble, those that are weak in faith? Or do we rather come alongside of them and build into their lives? Jesus gives us a stern warning to those who lead young Christians to fall. Perhaps one of His most vivid and gruesome warnings that He gives Look what he says in verse 42. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus says, it would be better for you to be drowned and have a, have a grave at the bottom of the lake than for you to face me in eternity for what you've done. This is frightening. Better to drown then face God on Judgment Day. Better just to get it over with now in your life than to stand before God that day. It's a stern warning and reminder that those who lead others' faith to fail, lead others to sin, await a great judgment. And I can think of nothing here but parents. And our call to exhort our children, regardless of their age, to follow Jesus. We want to think both of our paternal and spiritual you know, parents. 
How are we doing both on the sort of the physical side? You know, are we leading our children well? Are we modeling well what a disciple of Christ looks like? Or by our sin, are we leading them to rebel the way we rebel? How are we modeling this in our lives and being an example to children and young people? How are we as spiritual parents? So if you're here today and you've been a Christian a while, you should be living your life in such a way that it model before younger Christians. You should be a model of faithfulness, not bitterness. A, fo- a, mo- a model of joy. Not coming in every week complaining, but rather coming in and encouraging, exhorting, loving. You should be the one that we point to to say, look, this individual has been walking faithfully with Christ for 30 years. Look, I want to encourage you, follow after them. It is not wrong to invite people to, to imitate you. It's not wrong. That's in fact what a disciple is. That's what we are to do. We are to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, if I'm not following Christ, I ain't exhorting you to invite people to follow you. But if you're following Jesus and you're seeking to grow in faith, then call those younger under you. And this doesn't mean age. I'm not talking about like just you're, those who are spiritually younger, those that are weak in faith, invite them to follow you. Model your faithfulness before them. This implies, though, that you are actually living with them. That is, that your life is exposed to them. They, they actually are in your home and in your car and in your life. And they're hearing the way that you talk. They're, they're seeing the way you react. They, they, they can see your life is an open book. Brothers and sisters, that is the Christian life. It is a life lived open before others that we can model well what it looks like to follow Jesus. Jesus warns us that we must keep our lives lest we lead others to sin. Secondly, keep your life free from sin. Keep your life free from sin, Jesus says. In verses 43 through 48, Jesus exhorts us to remove the sin from our lives. Notice first, he says, if your hand causes you to sin. He says, if your foot causes you to sin. If your eye causes you to sin. Right? What do you see Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, look, there's different ways that you sin. Your hand, your eyes, your foot. Well, what is it that is leading you to sin? What is it that's causing sin in your life? Well, where is sin manifesting itself in your life? Now, Jesus is probably here just trying to conceptualize different ways. You know, we see, we lust with our eyes, for example. Our hands, murder, work, evil. Our feet, here, Sort of just visualizing us actually going and doing that sin, going, going and traveling, whatever that, if it's our travel to sin, places in our lives where we are prone to walk and therefore sin in. Jesus, Jesus in imagining your whole life here and thinking, where in my life is sin being manifested? Is it in my eyes, the things I'm looking at? Is it my hands, the things I'm doing? Is it, is it my feet, the places I'm going? Where does sin show up in my life? Then, notice what Jesus says. He says, cut it off. Cut it out. Gouge it out. Remove it. Tear it out. Cut, your, cut off your hand. Cut off your feet. Rip out your eyeball. Whatever you need to do. 
Now, some have taken this literally. Historically, Christians have taken this literally um, and have done these things. But Jesus is not here exhorting us to literally go home today and when we lust, rip our eyeballs out. Because clearly, lust will not be removed by just removing eyeballs. Right? Though a deterrent, perhaps, from sin, it does not remove the heart of sin. Remember what Jesus said a few chapters earlier. That, though, that sin comes from within. Out of the heart of man comes evil. It's not from without. It's not just our body parts that, you know, it's like my hands over here doing something. And, no, no, no. It's my heart. It's, my, it's, it's inside of me. It's what I want to do. This is my will in life is to sin. I love sin more than I love Jesus. I mean, that's just, that's sin. And so what Jesus here is exhorting us to do is it's time to take the trash out of our lives. Jesus is saying that we must uh, not, not mutilate our bodies, but mortify our flesh. So this is not this is not mutilation here. This is mortification of of the flesh. This is that we are actively involved in taking radical steps to remove sin from our lives. We're taking the trash out of our lives, of our hearts. I want you to notice here that Jesus is exhorting us as Christians to be active in this way. That is, we are to do that. No one can do it for you. And that is reassuring as a parent. Let me just think about that for a second. As a parent, I want you to think for a minute. So we've got parents, old, young. You've got kids that are older than me. You've got kids that are you know, younger than mine. But notice he says, you deal with the sin in your own heart. You can't fix the sin in someone else's heart. Jesus is exhorting us to remove our sin from our lives, not the sin in other people's lives. We're not going around doing that. We're going around removing our sin. But how do we do this? Just think about it for a second. First, you've got to identify the problem. You've got to identify the sin. And and it doesn't take long. Sin manifests itself in so many different ways. Think about it. Well, what do you spend most of your time thinking about, for example? Well, what do you spend most of your time doing? The time is a great measure of idolatry. So, so whatever I give my time to, uh, often, not, not always the case, but it is perhaps where the idol lives in my heart. So whatever I give myself to the most, whatever I give my energy to, my, my will to, my desires to, my love to, perhaps, not always, that is where my sin rests and relies and lives and breathes. Jesus says, Wherever your heart is. Where's your love? Where's your attention? What are you looking at? What are you doing with your hands? What are you walking to do with your feet, Jesus says? Identify it, he says, and take radical steps to remove it from your life. Cut it off. Get it out of your life. But notice the motive in doing it. Notice the motive, the the warning, if you will, that Jesus gives in this passage. No, don't don't ignore the warning here this morning because, you know, we just don't talk about hell and polite company. 
We just don't do that. It's not right. No, no look here at the reality, the awfulness, and the, eterni- the eternity of future punishment. That is, that, 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 that there is a real place called hell. Now, let me begin here just for a second to help some of our readers here this morning. As you're looking at your Bible, and you heard me read, and you're like, boy, that preacher's jumped over some verses in the Bible there, didn't he? Uh, if you're perhaps reading from the King James this morning, would be the only translation, this would be the case. But if you are, you'll notice that um, there's a few verses that are sort of jumped over. That is, there's some, in, in modern translations, there, there are actually verses that are not there. Okay? That are like, you're, so for example, verse 46 is not in the ESV. Maybe you didn't even notice it. Verse 44 is not in the ESV. So what do we make of that? Like, did these guys just like start cutting the Bible out? What's going on here? Well, what it is is that the, the, the oldest, most reliable manuscripts, so some really, really reliable uh, so manuscripts, just like sort of the original you know, Greek or whatever, some of those, uh, those older manuscripts way back in the day that are really reliable, well, when the King James translators, they didn't have access to those. And so what, what we see here is that this, these verses originally, remember the Bible, no printing presses, right? So Christians did not have Bibles they could take home with them. And so the Bible is written in a way to help aid in memory. So to the original hearers, they would have heard these words and they would have been memory devices for them. Helpful words that would have rung in their ear because they sound similar. Now, in our English translation, that doesn't really come, come out, right? Because we use different words. Obviously, our language is different. And so it doesn't really ring in our ears clearly. But if you, for example, were to hear after every one of these verses, to the unquenchable fire, to the, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, to unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire... You know, so again, it, it, was a, it was a way, a memory device... And that memory device kind of crept into later translations. Just like perhaps you write in your Bible. Perhaps you, you write little notes in your Bible. Well, imagine if someone made a copy of your Bible and they included the, your notes in there. In, in the, that, that's similar of what, what's happening. So, so again, I, didn't want, I just want to say a word. I don't often talk about variants there, but uh, if you want to know more about that, uh, we can talk later about that. But I just want to encourage you, we're not cutting verses out of the Bible. Okay? Amen. All right. Now let's go back. Reality. Notice that there is a real place. Jesus says that if you do not deal with sin, notice the result, you go to hell. If you do not deal with sin radically in your life, there is a place you go to. So again, the language here is telling us that there is a real place. Jesus here isn't just speaking figuratively. Like, you know, if you don't do this, there's going to be, you know, something bad's going to happen. Sort of this figurative place. So Jesus is talking about a real place, a, a real hell where eternal punishment will happen. And friend, if you're not a Christian here this morning and, and you struggle with this aspect of hell, Jesus, our founder of our faith, Christianity, the, the founder of Christianity, God eternal, taught about hell, and he said it was a real place. A place of eternal torment and torture. Notice also that this real place is grotesque and awful and horrible. Look at the horror of hell. 
in these verses. Don't, don't, don't just glance over them this morning. Just sort of put it in some other part of your life like, yeah, 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 that's, that's for some other day. I'll think about that later in life. I'll think about that some other time in life. No, no, this is a word to you as a Christian this morning. Who is Jesus talking to in these verses? He's talking to Christians. So he's talking to. So if you're a Christian this morning, you think, oh, no, hell's for the bad people. Those are the people that sin. No, 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 no. Jesus is being clear. If you do not deal with sin in your life, if you do not become radically militant towards sin, that place is not for those outside, but it's for you. Because you will not repent and trust in me. Notice how he describes it, though. Verse 43. To the unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. The inextinguishable fire. Fire that will never go out. Never will that fire cease. It's going on and on and on and continually. Now, Jesus could perhaps be figurative here. Perhaps Jesus is being figurative. And that, that it, that's a possibility. But the question of it, Jesus being figurative about in unquenchable fire, I would say that whatever it points to, whatever the symbol is pointing to, could be perhaps far worse. It does not diminish the reality of it and the awfulness of it. Unquenchable fire. He says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus here quoting Isaiah 66 and verse 24. That, that last phrase of Isaiah is where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The place where God has destined all those who would not turn from their sins and trust in Him. The place of horror and torment. A place where the worm doesn't die. Horrible. Worms gouging themselves for all of eternity upon the flesh of humanity. Eating and eating, never having their fill. And that body never ceasing from being feasted upon for all of eternity. It is horrible and it is dreadful and it is awful. And God says this place is real. That hell is eternal. Now some might teach or you might believe that well, I, I, I grew up that you know God just is so loving that He just is going to annihilate all those that don't trust in Him. It is the guy when, when, when we die after judgment, God's just going to end. It's going to be the end of our soul. That's it, my friend. That is just not true. The Bible says clearly that this place is real and this place is eternal. All of the verbs in this passage are, are in the present. That is, that they are continually. They, they're not just sort of looking at it like they just happened. No, no, this is, this is forever. This is ongoing. This is continual. Hell is a place of eternal torment and torture. A place of suffering and pain. A place where worms don't die. And friends, the way we think about hell matters. The way we talk about hell matters. Let's consider just for a moment what, what some other Christians have thought about it. In 1689, a group of Christians wrote this in the London Baptist Confession on hell. The wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast aside into everlasting torment and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Christians, Christians have believed for centuries 
that God will punish those eternally who do not turn from their sin and trust in Him. Our own, our own statement of faith says this, God in His own time and in His own way will bring the world to its appropriated end. According to His promise, Jesus will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised. That is, not, not only Christians, all people will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous and their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Friends, hell is an everlasting place. An everlasting place of torment and torture. How should we respond to Jesus' words? Should we just write them out of the Bible? Write them out of our lives? Not really think about it? Not talk about it? No, I think as a Christian, the first place we go is humility. We recognize that place is for me. The place of unquenchable fire and worms eating, that's the place I deserve. That's the place I, 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 I should go to for my sin. That's the place that if Christ had not entered into my life, that is the place that I would be eternally separated from God in His glory. Feeling the weight of my sin as God judges me justly for my sin. But in Christ, He took those worms and He took that fire from me. And He hung on the cross for my sin. And all those who would ever turn and trust in Him, Christ died for their sins. He bore God's wrath. Amen. He took upon Himself this for us. And if you will confess your sins today, He will save you from this place. He will free you from the eternity that you deserve. Oh friend, do not be confused by what I say. Every human deserves this place. As Christians, we accept that. We embrace that. We know this is our place. This, we, we hung our hats here eternally. This is what we deserved for our sin. So don't be confused this morning to think that, you know, I'm a better person than others. And so this is, he's talking about really bad people here. It's what really bad people deserve. No, no, this is what you deserve. When we taste the horror of hell, the love of Christ, the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ soars in our souls. We cry out to Him all the more in thanksgiving, in adoration, and worship, that He would free us from this place that we justly deserve. Friend, if you are here this morning and you just say, you know, this is silly stuff. Hell is silly. To even think that God, this good and loving God that you worship would, would, would create a place where He would punish people is just ludicrous to even consider. It runs contrary to the whole Bible about God as love. Friend, I want to tell you, someone's lied to you. God is love. But God is also a just and holy God. God would cease to be good 
if he did not deal with sin. And as Christians, we don't believe that God took our sin and just sort of swept it away. We don't think that God just sort of looked over our past our sin and said, ah, it's no big deal, I understand, we all make mistakes. God does not do that. He did not do that for us. He did not sweep our sin under the rug. He did not just look past our sin. He punished our sin in the death of His own Son. You see, what Jesus is doing on the cross is being punished for our sin. He is tortured for our sin in our place for all those who repent. So, I just ask this morning, turn from your sin and trust in Him. Friend, we see that your soul is more valuable to God than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Physical pleasure in sin will not satisfy you. Do not believe that lie that that the things of this world will ever satisfy your soul. And trust in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must take sin seriously. Jesus is telling us this morning that, look, you cannot take a passive position toward your sin in your life. Because if you do, that sin will drag you to hell. Lest you deal with it in Christ. So the Christian is at war against sin. The Christian is not looking at the world's problems and just saying it's all out there. Rather, it's looking inward and saying the problem is in here and in Christ I'm going to deal with my sin because Christ has been victorious over my sin in the cross and in the resurrection. And so I fight freely against sin every day wanting it out of my life. I don't coddle it, don't hold it and love it. I want it dead. I want it gone from my life. The question for you this morning is, are you willing to fight your precious sin? Are you willing to fight the idol in your life? Are you willing to take the radical step Jesus says and start cutting things off? Start cutting things out of your life? And saying, I don't need this anymore in my life. I don't, I don't need this in my life anymore. Are you willing to lay aside your sin to receive the glories of Christ? That is the question. John Owen famously wrote, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at this in your life. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or wit will be killing you. Friend, I just encourage you to write that down. on your, So wherever you're going to look every day, wake up in the morning and be reminded of that truth. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Daily we must stand and fight against our sin. We must not take passive roles but active roles. We must also invite others into this work in our lives. We must work together to fight our sin. Jesus concludes this by saying that we must see our lives as a life of sacrifice. Verses 49 and 50, though somewhat confusing, are His exhortation to suffer for the sake of Christ. That sacrifice in life is worth the glories of heaven. And so we fight. 
Jesus concludes by saying, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will it make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. Salt and fire are Old Testament words and symbols of sacrifice. And like Paul, Jesus is exhorting us to live a life of sacrifice. In Romans 12, 1 Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our life is a life of sacrifice, a life of killing sin, a life of giving up and going without for the sake of Christ and His great name. He says salt is good. It's a good thing to be salted, he says. This is good. This is similar language that he uses in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount when he writes, you are the salt of the earth. Christians are to be preserving influences in the lives of others. As Christians, we are not to hinder others in sin, but rather we are to exhort one another and influence one another and our lives. This is what Jesus is telling us to do here in this passage. So how do we do it? How do we live lives of sacrifice? One, by keeping our lives so that we don't cause others sin. Two, by keeping our lives free from sin. We want to suffocate sinful activities in our lives, lest they rise up and suffocate us in unquenchable fire. And thirdly, by keeping our life full of salt, leading a life of sacrifice and enduring the fire of persecution that comes with it. And brother and sister, in these ways, we obey Christ and His call to deal with sin and to walk in obedience. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to you recognizing that we are unworthy of your grace. As we consider the horrors of hell and recognize that we deserve that place. For our rebellion was real and it deserves a real place of eternal punishment. Our sin deserves your just judgment. But our hearts are full of joy, gladness, knowing that we can turn from sin and trust in Christ, a perfect sacrifice. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. We give you praise and glory. And Lord, my prayer today for these brothers and sisters is that we would fight against sin. That we would strive for holiness in our lives. That we would take sin seriously and live lives free of sin. Let us, Father, give us strength by your Spirit to kill and mortify the flesh. For your glory and our eternal good, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and conclude our